You shall keep the feast of booths seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place the, that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all, in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will all together, so that you will be altogether joyful. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Good morning. Good to have you all uh, out with us today. Um, good to see the folks on Zoom. At least a minute ago we could see them. And hopefully, thanks to all the good work that Nick and Corey and Daniel have been doing, uh, this is, you're, you're able to see the screen share of the PowerPoint as well. Um, I don't have a clicker. It's the only thing. Is there a clicker, Andy? <clears throat> so uh, this time of year, uh, it, it's, it's a lot of things this time of year. Um, Hurricane season where we live. Um, it's when the hurricanes aren't coming through, we, we uh, enjoy this beautiful, crisp weather. It's just so refreshing after hot August and early September. Um, it's about autumn leaves. You know, people come from all over the place to go uh, to Western North Carolina and other places just to look at leaves. Um, it's about football, um, however disappointing that might be. Um, and it's about harvest. It's about harvest. Harvest time should always make us think about God. And that's really what I want to focus on today is the connection between how we think about God and how we think about harvest. And I realize we don't, most of us live in an agricultural, uh, you know, we don't, we don't live in an agrarian uh, kind of situation anymore. That's not our lifestyle. We, we don't know that much about an agrarian ethos, maybe something our grandma told us, or you've got a little garden um, but we're, for the most part, pretenders compared to people, you know, back in ancient times. Appreciate it. Um, so, but it, it is true that, um, it is true that um, we all depend upon harvest. It's how we get what we have to eat. And we, we crave and really need to survive physical things. God made us physical beings. We're not disembodied spirit. This, this body and this life isn't some accident we're waiting to get over, uh, really. That's an, that's an extreme one direction, but we can also go in another way, um, which we'll talk about in a minute. But all, all, of, um, all of the major harvests, I mean, sorry, all of the major feasts that the Jewish calendar uh, incorporated, that, that Yahweh expected his people to observe in antiquity, um, all of those religious events were arranged around harvest. Uh, especially the three major feasts, the three so-called pilgrimage feasts. Um, they were called pilgrimage feasts because they were so important that all male Jews, however far away they lived, and this is even after the time of the diaspora, they were expected to make a, a physical pilgrimage, a trip to Jerusalem to observe these three major feasts. And I, I do realize that these three feasts memorialize more overtly religious or theological truths from Israel's history. 
But each of these also had an agricultural significance, a harvest significance. Passover, also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, was connected to the barley harvest. The Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, as it was later called, was tied to the early wheat harvest and to the first fruits, the beginnings of the harvest season. And then the third of the three big pilgrimage feasts was the Feast of Booths, or Feast of Tabernacles, which celebrated the final feast of the year, the big in-gathering of all the stuff in the, at the culmination of the agricultural year. It actually finished this year like a day or two ago. So it's, we're really in the time right now of this Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. And, and um, it's this last one, the Feast of Booths, that we want to focus on today. This feast occurred every time, I'm, I'm sorry, it occurred this very time of the year. And Exodus 34 actually calls it the Feast of Ingathering. This is referring to the same feast, but in Exodus 34, 22, he says, you shall observe the Feast of Weeks, the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. So he's talking about the big three pilgrimage feasts. And notice that he doesn't call the third one, the final one, the one that's in the, our fall of the year, the Feast of Booths. In this text, he calls it the Feast of Ingathering. It's a different Hebrew word, the word Asif, um, because it celebrated the bounty of God's harvest. But the same feast over in Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 16, the passage that Nick read a minute ago, is called the Feast of Booths from the Hebrew word Sukkah, which means booth or tabernacle, some sort of temporary structure, a hut, um, something that isn't your you know, permanent home. It's, a, it's like camping out. You're bivouacking in a, in a temporary structure of some sort. That is captured with the word booths. And in Leviticus 23, we see that aspect here, and we see it called the, 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 the booth uh, feast in, in the latter part of this text. Reading beginning in verse 39 of Leviticus 23, he says, On the 15th day of the seventh month, seventh month, that's roughly September, October for our calendar, when you've gathered in the produce of the land, so you can see it's the ingathering thing, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the, uh, the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths. When I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. So the same feast has two different names and two different significances. On one hand is this it's about ingathering of the final harvest. It's about the bounty of God's goodness, right? They're, they're clearing out the wheat and the, the grapes and everything and having a feast. On the other hand, it's to celebrate or to memorialize a kind of tough time when Israel was living in these little temporary structures day after day, night after night, year after year for 40 years in the wilderness wandering between the Exodus and their entrance in the promised land. Okay? But it was also a harvest festival. And so I'm going to call this lesson Worshiping the God of Harvest. Worshiping the God of Harvest. Now, what can we learn as Christians from the fact that God would build key religious observances around harvests? That's the structure of their life. That tells us something. 
But what can we learn more particularly from the Feast, the feast of Booths? So first, this feast is a reminder that we are pilgrims, that we are, like they were, engaged in an earthly pilgrimage. When you're on a pilgrimage, you know, the way of St. James, maybe you've seen the movie about that or read about it, you know, this long walk in like southwestern France down into northwestern uh, or northern Spain. I don't know where it terminates exactly, but it, it's a long hike. It's like hiking the AT, but with a religious significance. Um, and you got to plan where you're going to stay each night, where you're going to get food and all this. Stuff. A pilgrimage means you're not at home, really. Not ultimately. Your, your, your uh, home is on your back, right? Home's a concept. You're not in a permanent place. It's a pilgrimage. You're wandering. You're sojourning. And so a major purpose of the feast was to remind them of their 40-year desert wandering. When they, the, the, they had no home other than the little tent that they constructed each day of twigs and boughs and, and palm fronds or whatever they could find. No spot on the ground to call their own. They simply pitched their little tabernacles wherever God placed his bigger tabernacle. Theirs fanning out around his by tribe. Remember? The tabernacle of Yahweh's in the middle, and they are arrayed according to Leviticus in the appropriate place. But they just follow the location is picked by the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire as God's presence moves before them. And so to observe this feast, Jewish males had to travel on a literal pilgrimage all the way back to Jerusalem. This was a, a very physical and probably at times grueling, maybe even anxiety-producing object lesson about one's pilgrim status in this world. It was reminding them that their deep uh, dependence was upon God. And that dependence didn't stop once they reached Canaan, once they reached the land of promise. They were to recapitulate this every year to say, basically, you're still a pilgrim in the ways that really matter. You're still a wanderer. You're still a sojourner. And, and so the lessons here for us, I think, are pretty obvious. Sometimes you and I are tempted to become too comfortable, too at home, in this world. I don't want to advocate a kind of escapism where we just go, we can punt on everything because we don't really belong here. That's been one Christian error throughout the ages, right? Whatever we're talking about, we've become escapists. We just sort of go into a little cocoon. That's not seeking the welfare of the city. And sometimes these questions like Daniel talked about earlier with political stuff, that's tough to know what to do. I don't think the answer is just to go in a hole. It's also not to worship at the altar, as he put it well, uh, of this political uh, identity and we, we're not escapists, but we also aren't perfectly at home here. We're pilgrims. We're to do our best in our little part of the corner of the world where, where God puts us, but we're ultimately pilgrims. And this feast was an object lesson in that. First Peter 1 calls us sojourners and exiles. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. James 4, 4 calls us adulterous people to the extent that we have a friendship with the world. He says that's, by definition, an enmity with God. This is pretty binary. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, you just cozy up to the world as if it's your, you know, uh, you're, a, you're a beaver and that's your beaver lodge, you know. You're a orb weaver and you're that spider web with a little zipper. That's, that's, your, that's, your, you know, that's your crib. We don't have anything like that. At least we're not supposed to think of it that way. We don't ultimately belong here. We are pilgrims. And so we've got to, like the pilgrims of old, resist the temptation to, as it were, turn back to Egypt as we wander, as we sojourn, as we pilgrim along. God sustained them miraculously with manna from heaven and water from the rock in this desert. 
and yet they pined for Egypt. They longed for Egypt. Numbers 11, 4 through 6 says that the people of Israel wept again. There's several occasions where they did this. They said, oh, that we had meat to eat. Some of the, ver the, the, the verses elsewhere in the Pentateuch say, we, we long for the flesh pots of Egypt. That needs better marketing. But a lot of us like meat, right? Some of us don't eat meat. Some of us do. But I know a lot of people in here, I think, could just pretty much subsist on meat. You wouldn't live very long. But if it were up to them, it'd just be meat all the time. Um, they miss that too. And not only that, the cucumbers, the melons. I am down for some melons. I hate this time of year, watermelons go away. And I, I love the year otherwise, but that's one negative with fall. Um, look what they're saying. Our strength is dried up. We don't have all these goodies anymore. The produce of the land, there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. And though God is trying to take care of them, they want to go back to Egypt. Does that sound familiar at all to you? Like them, if we would but trust God, he will sustain us through the wilderness of our world and bring us safely to the land of promise. Second, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles reminds us of God's abundant provision. Not just God's provision, but God's abundant provision. Because it isn't always going to be manna and you know water from a rock every now and then. It's going to get way better than that. There's a reason he calls the land of Canaan, to which they're headed, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so the Feast of Booths was also a week-long celebration of the gathering in, the gathering in, the harvest of all that God had provided. Deuteronomy 16 captures this well. Verse 13, you shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press your grain, your grapes, and all the other things. You're going to gather that the whole purpose is. It's the culmination of the agricultural year. You're having a period of rest before you start the next cycle. And you're going to think about Yahweh and celebrate just the, 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 the copious harvest that he provides his people. And this harvest feast was arguably the most popular Jewish feast. Josephus says that it was so popular that whole Jewish towns would go up together to Jerusalem to celebrate. The whole place would just be vacated. He calls it the holiest and greatest of the Jewish feasts. Sometimes in the Bible, it's just called the feast, even though there were a bunch of other ones. It's just the feast. It's the one that people love to go to. It had a festive atmosphere. It was very known for this sort of celebratory. It wasn't somber and, and, and all of that. There were a day or two in it where you said there'll be a solemn uh, you know, uh, day to the Lord. But even that apparently wasn't mutually exclusive with celebration. We sometimes assume solemn means quiet and, and uh, sort of, you know, brooding. Uh, you can be very reverent and celebrate something. Those aren't mutually exclusive. Burden of proof's on you. If you want to say that, those don't go together. I, I would say that comes out of our culture as much as anything else. There's a lot of uh, devotion to God that in the Bible is described as joyous celebration. And this is the feast par excellence of that kind of atmosphere of joy. In fact, it was God's will. Look at the rest of this text in Deuteronomy 16. This isn't just something that developed through Jewish tradition over the centuries. He says, God does, you shall rejoice in your feast. You, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow who are within your town, everybody that's there shall rejoice. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. Ultimately, that's going to be Jerusalem, of course. Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce, 
and in all the work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. Harvest, abundance, God's provision, celebration, joy. That's a picture of the Feast of Booths. And central to this feast was the water drawing ceremony or the water pouring ceremony. And this occurred when the priests and the people marched together in procession from the pool of Siloam to the temple. And when they arrived at the temple, the priests would pour out water and wine at the base of the altar. Now water, of course, was crucial to any hope for harvest. You're not gonna have harvest, you don't have water. Now we, of course, everybody knows that, right? Of course we have rain, we gotta have rain. But this is the arid, you know, Middle East. This is Canaan, this is Palestine. This isn't North Carolina where it rains, I don't know, 44 inches a year or something. This is more like Southern California, right? Um, where, you know, we, get, we can get more rain today and tomorrow maybe and yesterday than, than at the half a year's worth in parts of the Western US. And, and that's the case, they have to worry about water. It's a big deal in their mentality, in their mind, in their sort of worldview. And so water is often connected to God's provision in the harvest. A psalm like Psalm 60, 65 comes up. And I want you to notice as we read through this section of Psalm 65, how much God delights to water the earth abundantly and to bless his people with just this bounteous harvest. You visit the earth and water it, the psalmist says to God. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the years with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain and shout and sing together with joy. Isn't that kind of a picture of what the feast was to celebrate? God is watering everything so abundantly that not only the works of, the, of their farming hands are, are producing, but the wilderness is producing. And it all abounds or, or redounds to the joyful celebration of, of their maker and sustainer. It's about joy, it's about harvest, and this feast was to celebrate that. It's to remind them and to remind us that God loves to bless his people. You're not more religious if you, um, you know, there's this idea, I really think it comes from pagan thought, ultimately, that it's somehow holier to always abstain from everything. You know, the less you like food, the, the, I, there, I don't know where we get that from. It's hard to find that in the Bible. There are, there are certain vows in the Bible that are like that, but they're the exception that prove the rule. And they're just loads and loads of texts like this one. Remember in, in 1 Timothy 4, when Paul is addressing something which is coming down the pike, he said, uh, I don't know when in the future, but there's going to be this idea that, that accessing and consuming, uh, involving yourself too much in creation is somehow evil. And if you're, if you're really religious, you'll abstain from things like marriage and, and certain foods. And here's what Paul says to that. Uh, verse 4 of 1 Timothy 4, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Everything he created is good. It's good depending on how you receive it. With thanksgiving and prayer, he says, verse 5, it's made holy. If you take it as an end in itself and abuse it, 
inordinate amounts, wrong context, then it takes on a whole different thing. You're not doing it God's way then. But if you're doing it God's way, and you're giving him the credit for it, and you're prayerfully showing gratitude, God is elated by that. You're worshiping God by enjoying the harvest. God likes you to celebrate. There's a whole feast for that. And so that's the second point. Now, let me say this. No matter how good some days are, in our lives, no matter how good some seasons of our lives are, most of us are going to come to experience something, maybe not as much as some people, but something of Job's sober adage. When Job in his suffering said, man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. So we do need something more. We do need something more. And thankfully, the feast and the harvest point us to Jesus. So thirdly, not only does this feast um, evoke God's or our earthly pilgrimage and God's abundant provision, it points to Jesus and his ultimate pouring. Let me explain what I mean by that. You know, Jesus actually attended the Feast of Booths. John 7, a whole lot of text on this, big long chapter. Here's how it begins. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, verse 2, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers say to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, the whole world, the Jewish world, is at Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths. And they know that. Like, if you're who you're claiming, go down there. Right? But it says their real motivation, not even his brothers believed him. This is sarcastic or cynical or intended to set him up even. So Jesus doesn't go at this point. But later the text tells us he does travel to the feast in Jerusalem. He goes alone. He goes without his brother's knowledge. And he keeps out of the public eye because of his Jewish opponents. And they're looking for him and the timing isn't right. But then about halfway through the feast, maybe on the fourth day, the middle day, the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus makes his presence known by going into the temple and beginning to teach publicly right in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. And on the last day of the feast, he says something remarkable. He stands up, and this was known as the culminating great, uh, day. In fact, in John 7, it's called the great day of the feast. On the last day of the feast, the great day, John 7, 37, Jesus stood up and cried out. So now this is just as public as you can be. Crying out in the most public place in Judaism on this day of the calendar. Here's what he says. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You want water? Here's where you get water. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds in verse 39, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So on this final climactic day of the feast, the water-pouring ceremony reaching its high point, the priests circled the altar seven times on that day, and then with great pomp and circumstance, pours out the water at the altar, and on that very day, possibly right as that water is being poured out, we don't know, Jesus proclaims loudly 
to be himself the source of life-giving water and proclaims faith in him to be the guarantee of a never-ending flow of that water from within yourself. Now, to any Jew hearing this, to make a claim like that is to basically claim to be the creator. The one who brings water. The one who gives harvest. The one who sustained Israel in those booths all those many years in the wilderness wandering. He's claiming to be God, nothing less. Indeed, John tells us that Jesus actually was referring to God's very spirit, which believers, Jesus says, were to receive. He does say something about Scripture here. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We don't know where that Scripture, you can't find that exact statement. So there's, you could look up commentators, you're going to find all sorts of speculation about what Scripture he's quoting. It's probably some sort of composite of several ideas in the prophets. Um, Isaiah 44.3 does make the link between water and spirit, which John, in several contexts, Nicodemus, you must be born again of water and spirit, and so on, uh, is going to pick up. But Isaiah 44.3 had said in a, a, a prophecy of you know, the future restoration of God's people and the new heavens and new earth ultimately, and God's servant, Jesus, uh, giving himself up like a lamb at the slaughter, all of that. I will pour, pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And, and moreover, there are several Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, who speak of an eternal future when God's people will be themselves a well-watered garden. Hang with me, Zoom people. This is just a blank slide. I forgot that that doesn't work well when we're Zooming. Um, I, well, I don't want to give that away yet. Just hang with me. Um, we, we will be a well-watered garden. Waters will flow say some of the Old Testament prophets, from Jerusalem. Waters will flow from the temple to bless the whole world, to inundate and fertilize the entire world, all the nations. These are statements all over the prophets. Well, Jesus is here saying, I, I am the fulfillment to this feast. Trust in me. Stay on the pilgrim's path with me. And I will pour out God's blessings upon you beyond your wildest dreams. In another place in the Gospels, Jesus calls himself the Lord of harvest. Do you remember that? Different context, but still, he uses the harvest imagery. He's where harvest is focusing. He's where harvest is, is heading. So it's no wonder that in Revelation 21, or 22, verse 1, in this great vision John has, possibly the same John, probably the same John, who wrote the Gospel of John. This vision of the new heavens, new earth, when God is literally tabernacling, tabernacling with his people because of Jesus. We read this. The angel showed me the river of the water, the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. And so it's not flowing from the temple so much in Revelation, even though that's what the prophet said when they were talking about the new heavens, new earth. Remember what Revelation says earlier? There's no temple needed because God and the Lamb are the temple. We're so in, present with Him. That's what temple was about, God's presence with, with humanity. God with us, the Emmanuel. Here, the water's flowing from the Lamb Himself because He is the temple. This water, I won't read it further, but it says it nourishes the tree of life which 
heals the nations of the world, nurtures and sustains and heals all the people of the world. So this book, Revelation, and indeed the whole Bible, closes with this invitation. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come! And let the one who hears say, Come! And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Amen.